All right, everybody, we are going to start off today's episode with Joda and Dan's highly scientifically validated psychometric test so we can unearth the secrets of Zoe Fragu and Hannah Gala's leadership advice or leadership preferences through a psychometric test. And Hannah and Zoe are returning guests to our podcast, the Sense and Signal podcast. And are you two ready to take this psychometric test so we can learn more about your leadership style? That's literally why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So all right, before we start, I want to make sure I want to make sure that you guys are in, are going to take this with good faith. That these really highly we, Dan and I went through these questions with a fine tooth oh, comb. We got all kinds these of undergraduates really, to distribute the test that, at local campus. That, so this is this. These are very critical questions. So please, with a with an open heart, let's make this happen. Yeah, heart take them can. very seriously. Take them very seriously. All right. Question number one. You are a manager at a company and you discover that one of your employees has been stealing other people's lunches from the break room, even if they don't like the lunch. What do you do? A, ignore Ignore it and hope they get sick of eating of stealing and eating other people's lunches. B. Confront them privately and ask them to buy every everybody a new lunch. C. Report the lunch bandit to human resources. Or D. Poison everybody's lunches with Xlax on the day when the bathrooms are closed for maintenance. It's a very difficult one, but I have to say that this has actually happened to me <laughs> when I was HR manager in the company. Oh, really? This has actually, like, people were coming and complaining that there is a specific employee stealing their lunches. So I actually had to address this <laughs> as an HR manager. So I will go with the report to HR. Yeah, report to HR because they are the people who know best inside the company how to take care of this kind of crisis, big or small, without, you know, uh, breaking the climate and the mood of everyone. Okay. So report it to HR. Hana, what would you do? I would. So <laughs> this, not, not this exact same thing, but something very similar happened to me as well. And I would say, I would open my answer with people often underestimate how, how very important these things are. You're like, oh, it's just a lunch. It's not just a lunch. It can really destroy the the team structure. It can, you know, it little things. It's not that they add up, but they are they are important because it's an invasion of privacy. It's taking away from your sense of safety at work. It sounds so, you know, sophisticated, but really at the at, at the core that's what it is. So, I would um I would talk to if I'm the manager and I know who 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 that person is, then I'm going to approach them privately and I will say, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but uh, when that happened to me, <laughs> um, as in there was a situation when I lived in student dorms um, back in the day, we would have common fridge, and inevitably people would be, you know, your students, so people would be like using a little bit of this condiment and then taking a little bit of that and nobody would ever replenish it. And then you would have food that was there for way too long. 
And the only way to make it work, I think this is one of those situations where you can go pretty authoritarian and say, God, like, okay, mm -hmm. guys, we need a system. And this is the system. And if nobody else is going to volunteer, oh, okay. you can you can volunteer and come up with the system. Is it, you know, rotation or, but there needs to be somebody. And if the food post-it works, if it's still here at the end of the week, it's going out. So right. I would, I would probably. So we got HR. We, so we, we've got HR. We've got coming up with a system and being very direct with the person. Joda, what would you do in that situation? I would. I, God, I hate to say it, but I really like the idea of tainting my food. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. It's kind of my approach. I mean, you don't you don't have to. You'll never have do it again. Mean, mean about it, but yeah, they're gonna be like, oh my god, every just kind of their stomach kind of goes, you know, yeah. And and I wonder, like, I mean, anybody here ever done that yourself? Though, have you ever gone into the refrigerator and? Kind of dabbled in somebody else's, or their mustard. Maybe someone's mustard or ranch dressing, and said, "You know what? I can. No, they'll never miss it." Well, I ask, like I would say, and those I'm Greek. Like usually, if someone has something, they always offer, so I don't have to steal. Most of the times, they will say, "What do you have today? This is what I have. Let's put it on the table." Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's the different cultures, right? This sounds uh, how, like how, a very American problem, food. to be fair. Like, <laughs> oh, for sure. I can't for imagine sure. any Greek or Italians or Spanish <laughs> fighting over that. <laughs> okay, uh, second question. Where we're starting to learn more about all three of you. Okay, after a three hundred and sixty degree evaluation, your boss says your colleagues really think you need to improve on your self awareness and emotional intelligence, and your boss looks really worried when they're talking to you. So, how do you go about addressing this ask? A Pretend to seek feedback from others and pat yourself on the back uh, about all the strengths they identify and ignore all the weaknesses uh, they bring up. Two, uh, take a bunch of personality tests and seek therapy when they reveal you're a psychopath. C, take a mindfulness class uh, so you're more aware about when you're being a jerk so you can be a really much more intentional jerk at work. Or D, tell your boss, hey, that's who I am. And I've got the highest productivity stats in the whole company. So suck it up, Boomer. Uh -huh. hmm. <laughs> I think I would do the... This is almost this like is, an episode of Black Mirror. Yeah, okay. I think I would do the last one, like publicly. Okay. Publicly. And then the second one in private. Because I'm not the kind of person that responds very well to uh, bad feedback, especially when it's being like that. I respond much better to positive feedback. So I think that if someone came to me like that and they were like, oh, Zoe, you know what? Positive. You're not self-aware and you have this, this, this. Most probably what I would say is that, okay, yeah, suck it up. I'm, I'm the best in the team. So yeah, right. But then in private, I would feel bad about it and I would, I would try to find a solution. Nice. Hana? It's, it's a tricky question because... I think that the four of us, I think we're very self-aware. So I do not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't, it's really hard because it's a hypothetical situation. So, but I'm, a, I'm going to side a little with Zoe on this in terms of the neg, I'm actually a little different in the sense that negative feedback does not like 
hurt me anymore. It used to be much worse. I think that I went, you know, I, I've gone a long way. And, and these days it's much more like, huh, interesting. Okay. So it's a little, like, if there's another option where you go, okay, you see that I don't necessarily see it, but that's interesting. Let's, let's think about it. I don't know if I would go and do any tests. I don't know if I would do any of that, but I think that it is, I really like the the tests that give you other people, like 360. Um, I think they're really useful tools when you can confront the perception and, and your own um, vision or self-perception. So I would probably say, all right, that's, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we we also know people can also use those 360 evaluations to kind of get revenge on people too, right? That's one of the reasons people avoid them as well. Sure. But Joda, what about what about you? Yeah, I would I would taint his food for sure. Okay, taint the food. We're going back to that. That's our theme. All right, I think I think we got a good. I think that was a good uh, uh, pilot of our our psychometric test. So thank you for for participating in this experiment. All right, so Socrates said, "Know thyself," and he, when he said that, he was talking more about your behaviors and how you uh, act uh, in different situations, and rather than biographical information. So. Why is that important for leaders to know? Why is it important for leaders to know themselves? And how have you come to know yourself as a leadership trainer and consultant? Hannah, let's start off with you. Well, I will start at the end. And I will tell you that for the longest time, I didn't know myself. And if I'm honest, and I think that's because there is this um, and we might have discussed it before, or somebody definitely discussed it on your podcast before, but the di- sort of the disassociation between body and, and soul between, um, your brain and your, your physical, um, ever since Descartes, I think that the Western society was sold this lie of the disassociation. And so I love working with cerebral people because I I have been living in that prefrontal cortex myself for so long. And it seemed, you know, I was not only sold as the, you know, the, the Cartesian idea, but also positivism and like, you can discover everything through mathematics and, you know, you can, and I think it's a long way of saying knowing yourself is important because how we like what makes us tick what makes us excited how we are um, helps to understand how other people work right like you cannot relate to other people without understanding how like what are oh there are triggers there are things that are really important to me Right? There are buttons that some people can push that are really important to me and some that don't matter. And that is a critical piece of information. Now, what I like about the know thyself is that it, it's, it's sort of there's this dichotomy where <clears throat> it's not only about how you know yourself, but it's also about how you understand how you come to the world. Like, how do you present yourself in the world? 
how you appear to others, right? What is the perception of you? What people think when you enter the room, right? And, and I think for leaders, this is really important bit. And so often, especially in businesses and leaders I work with and clients I work with, they tend to be overthinkers because you make it far. Again, we are very left brain, you know, focused society and you make it far if you study hard and you are brainiac and, you know, that's really appreciated and uh, sort of revered. Well, the problem is then you stop paying attention to a lot of other things that come to play. And so for me, learning who I am, not just how I think, but all the other things, how I sense the world, how I come into the world, like how I walk into a room, right? Like how do I present myself, how I interact with people, that is really important. And when I work with clients, we we talk about it quite a bit because it's not just your thoughts. And I think this idea that, you know, the the brain is like the central uh, bit of everything is really hard because your team perceives a lot more than just the words or, or the thinking, right? So to me, uh, it is to answer your question, I didn't know myself for a very long time and through a lot of techniques and like embodiment and non-cognitive strategies, I learned way more about myself than just what I knew and what I could, you know, how I can ace a test and get a degree. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. that, that makes, that's interesting. And, you know, it, important, what I'm hearing is it's, it's, it's a constant, it's an, it's a engagement or active active listening of, of yourself and the people that you're working with. And um, that harkens back to a conversation Dan and I had a little while ago with some with- uh, I was gonna bring her up about, because the extended mind, yeah. again, like I love- Exactly. And that's not only any, uh, Annie's book is fantastic, of course, but it's also like, it's not necessarily new. You know, Damasio who, who published no. the uh, Descartes error, that's 30 years ago. And she quotes him, right? Like she opens her whole book with that. 30, anyway. Yeah, she, she makes a, uh, a point that she's she's borrowing those ideas and extending, uh, building off of them. And she definitely- She stood on the shoulders of greats for sure. Yeah. You know, but, I, but, 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 but I'm seeing you that, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that a leader is a, leadership is a dance with a group of other people. And it requires, um, active engagement as dancing does you actively but subtly uh, provide energy and forces and that you have to know yourself as much as you know the people that you're with um that's what i'm that's what i heard from you zoe what, what are your thoughts well, on for this? me it's a much different process so after endless years of therapy and like hypnosis and group therapy and workshops about self-awareness i would say that the only thing i know about myself by now is how fast i change Therefore, what I've learned is that I really need to be active about this particular thing that I changed so fast and things that I think that I know about myself, they are true the one day and they're not true the next day. So I think that the biggest mistake a person can make is to mistake self-awareness for something static. 
and for something that shouldn't be dynamic and for something mm. that, okay, I've come to the conclusions. I know myself by now. Therefore, I stop experimenting. I stop taking risks. I stop, uh, I don't know, searching for new triggers in the environment. You've no idea. It's such a big word. And by the, by the way, if you do everything right, that's when you're a different person every single day. If you, do, you must be doing everything really wrong in this life to what you used to know about yourself to stay correct through. I'm not talking, of course, about core values. There will be some things that have to be stable because other people really value consistency. And therefore, if you are a serious person, you're also a cons- consistent person. But that's like so few things in the in, in the big sphere that constitutes a human being. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point that you're making, Zoe, because I, I forget the poet uh, who said this, but you know, it's all a process of becoming, right? We're continually becoming and we're not static throughout our lives. We change. You know, we're definitely not the same people we were when we were teenagers or in our twenties. Um, and I know Zoe, you're you're in your thirties, so you're you're you know there, but I'm certainly not the same person I was in my 30s. We've definitely, hopefully, have all grown and changed over time. And I guess that brings the, how do you monitor those changes in yourself and, and in your um, in your becoming? Well, I'm very, very active on the feedback I receive from the environment. But when I say feedback from the environment, not what they tell me, but what I feel when I experience something. So, for example, ah, I'll tell you something. Like, I'm already different. I'm 30 now, and I feel different from 28. I went to a festival last year and I, I really used to love festivals. And then last year I hated it. So I didn't just say, oh, yeah. it's that festival. I was like, okay, maybe I'm too old for festivals now. That is things over. That's the new me. The new me doesn't like festivals anymore. And it seems something like trivial. It's just a festival. But no, I gave it like one week and I don't have so many days off anymore. I have my own business to run. So to spend one week into something that I don't enjoy, yeah. that's madness. I think that yeah, that's that's a, yeah. Joda and I used to do festivals all the time, and now we don't. Did we? Just, yeah, yeah, I guess we did. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah exactly. I don't know. My <laughs> festival is my pillow. I like. Yeah, I, I like we have festivals <laughs> with our pillows and blankets. Yeah, that's that's where I fest these days. Um, okay, so this gives me, this this kind of brings up two quotes that I think are from Mahatma Gandhi. One is the uh, best way to or the be the change that you wish to see in the world is one. And I wonder how that kind of feeds into what I just heard. And then two, the uh, best way uh, to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Where does that play into leadership? And and it sounds to me there's, there's an aspect of this persistent changing, identifying the changes in yourself, but in the service, uh, 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 that, uh, that's what I'm gaining from that quote, in the service of others. I think I could tie these two things together in, in some recent experience that I've had. Uh, you know, over the past year, a couple of years during the pandemic and now to where wherever we're at within the context of that pandemic, post-pandemic, whatever you want to call it, you know, I've taken on a lot more work responsibilities in that time. And because of that, I get up very early in the morning now. And I, I it's, Maybe due to biological changes, psychological. I used to be a night owl. I used to be up so way late at night. Now I go to bed pretty early, and I'm up at four o'clock. And I'm getting a reputation at work for being the guy who responds to emails at like five in the morning, right? And the reason for that is I can do a better job. I've found I can do a better job in responding to emails early in the morning and just getting all that out of the way early because I'm more fresh and mentally acute at that point. And then 
when I go into work onto campus, I can really focus on the relational aspects of my job and not be buried in email in my office trying to answer email. So that would be an example, I think, of being aware of how you've changed as a person and then how that translates into your leadership approach and behaviors. Yeah, I think that was, um, I think that when what I was saying and what Zoe is saying, they're both, they can both be true, right? Like they both coexist, which is you, mm -hmm. by knowing yourself, you have to kind of allow, it, it, you have to allow yourself to sense and to pay attention. That's what I mean. And so, like, what are the signals yes. that I'm getting from myself? For example, when I go to, a, you know, a festival that lasts four days plus, and I'm not having fun, how do you know, right? So the change is in years before you might have you might have great time. And now you're paying attention to feeling mm, not exactly what I wanted. Okay, that is you know, that is change, but also paying attention, being aware, but being self-aware and understanding the signals that you need to pay attention to. I'm with you with like having different schedules or uh, sort of dedicating your time to different things that is changing, but understanding when your body says too much or I need a break and or, oh, that person says that they're okay, but they like, I sense from them, they're not right. Like I, I can't, I, yeah. those are things that are really, really critical for a leader and we can help our clients to get there. And I think that that's, that's where the gold mine is, right? Because they can, they can, they can master these techniques themselves and then be better, be more, um, I'm trying to find a different word, like paying more attention. And and really, you know, the Stoics would always say, like, be aware where you put your attention. And and that's everything. Yes. I meet people and so many people, by the way, that, for example, you ask them, what do you like to do? How do you like to spend your free time? And they tell you, oh, I really love nature, for example. And they're like, okay, so what's the last time you were at the beach or at the forest or, I don't know, mountain climbing? And they're like, well, I don't really have time to do that. And then you say, okay, so what else do you like? And they're like, cinema. I love cinema. Okay, what's the last movie you saw at the cinema? And they're like, Titanic. And the problem is that when we spend so much time into trying to think what other people are expecting from us and what they're expecting to hear about us, then not only do we know ourselves, but we're actually hurting ourselves because we haven't spent equal amount of time into understanding what we actually like. Because obviously, if you haven't been in the nature since forever, you don't like nature. So what do you like? What do you like to do? Do you invest in your time? Do you invest yeah. in knowing what you like to do? Yeah, I mean, I, guess, I think that does get to the heart of the whole self-awareness piece, Zoe, right? Like, because we're not really that self-aware, we're as self-aware as we think we are often, and we often craft narratives or have, you know, pat answers like, oh, I like nature, I like going to the movies. But when you dig deeper, you're not really doing those things. So how can you really say that you like them? Maybe you just like work and you're a workaholic. I mean, that's that's part of, the, part of what's going on. Um, and I guess that brings us to psychometric tests. Are they useful? Do you find that they are actually useful in maybe helping people uncover what's really motivating them underneath uh, and breaking through maybe the narrative they've built for themselves about who they are and 
um, and the stories that they share with other people about what they like and don't like that might not be actually accurate? Well, the validating and standardized tools, they are accurate because that's exactly why we call them accurate and validated because they have developed ways into, you know, asking the same question in different ways or like repeating themselves or reversing the answers. Therefore, at one point, they're going to get a result that's probably accurate about the behavior. But again, there's always at least a 10% of the population where you're going to run the test and you're not going to get accurate results, but not because of the test, but because they have zero idea what's real for them. In every company I run a psychometric test, there has always been, I don't know, out of 100 people, around 10 people that after meeting them afterwards, what they said that is true about them was absolutely not true. But it's usually not because they actually you know, want to fool the interviewee, which also happens sometimes. Like they give the answers they expect that you would like them to give. But most of them are actually not self-aware. So they see themselves as being very assertive or very passionate while they're not really. And another thing that I keep seeing, especially in 360 feedback tests, when you also have someone to answer questions about themselves, is that many people, they don't answer the questions based on what applies in the public population, in the average, but based on what applies to them. So for example, you might think that this person is super stressful and they will say, I'm not stressful. And they know that compared to what happens in their heads, they only put out in the environment 50% of it. So they, they judge the reality right. based on the internal demons and internal struggles. So that's what, and that's why, by the way, we shouldn't be applying psychometric tests, people that are not licensed to apply psychometric tests. That's why a psychologist or a psychometri psychometrician is needed because that's exactly what we offer. Otherwise, every company, they could just take a psychometric test and apply it on their own. Isn't so you're saying it's unethical for me and Joda. You're saying it's unethical for me and Joda to sell our test. You're, <laughs> you're the least of our problems. <laughs> so, well, no, uh, I disagree. I think we're probably the first of your problems. But uh, question. So I just had a did a research uh, effort recently, very small one, and something very similar happened. And it's interesting the difference between one's reaction to the world and then the perception to the reaction of their world. And it's a small sample, but what, what we were doing was we we're analyzing somebody's experience on a workflow of a product that I was overseeing. And I noticed them having problem left and right, you know, like they were, they couldn't click on certain things. They couldn't find certain aspects to the solution. But when asked them sentiment, like how we asked them on a, on a Likert scale of one to seven or like how, how findable were things, how easy was it, how whatever, they all gave it sixes and sevens. You know, they all gave them. They all said this was they, this was a, this was a, it was easy to use, easy to find, and so the perceptions of of the system were radically different than what I was perceiving them. Where the what we qualify in my industry, the happy paths, and so how much do we lie to ourselves? It depends, person. For and, and what a problem so is it? It depends person per, to person. It's, you know, it's, it's on the scale and there are certain, um, you know, when, when it comes to psychometrics, I think there's many different um, models and tools. And I agree that only licensed and certified people should, should kind of dabble in this, but the fundamental and Dan and Joda. No, no, no. Dan and the, Joda just, Dan the, the fundamental problem <laughs> with the psychometric um, uh, testing is that 
you are getting the version that people want to give you, right? Like a lot of people who don't want right. to go to therapy will tell you, well, you know, the, the therapy doesn't work because I will only tell what I want to tell. And this is true. This is true. And by the same token, the psychometric uh, testing, it, and there's a you know myriad of, of them and you can pick, and I am, I am skeptical, yet I think that they work to, for certain situations, for certain people, and they're great conversation openers, right? So a lot of people, a lot of coaches right. will tell you, I start with this, whether that's 360 or Enneagram or any of the other made up, you know, five personalities, whatever you want. Um, every almost, not almost, every single one of them is deeply flawed. And, and, the, and they are so flawed because they're only telling you what the person wants you to know, right? And like, I, I think Lisa Feldman Barrett, was, who wrote the um, How Emotions Are Made, and the seven stories of, on the brain uh, talked about it um, in in some context. How you know we we can like scientifically, what we're looking at is clusters, right? Like certain people when they do this, they also do this, and like we can cluster f people and behaviors. Yes, but the the value is in it. Really opens a conversation. And you can start kind of talking right. to people once you have the results, you know, then you can probe and, and kind of look. And I think that they're very helpful for organizations and for individuals when you pick the right ones. So again, that requires some level of experience and expertise, and you can't just do like a, you know, week long coaching uh, training and be like, Hey, I'm going to, tell you how to fix this organization and give you an analysis. But they are deeply flawed in that they are only giving you what people want to share. And I understand how they are yeah. constructed and I've been around uh, developing some and, uh, and I still maintain they are dubious at best when it comes to um, help. Well, I think we've I, I got have controversy. Say, what, we have some controversy. One, Wait, one Zoe, second first. The, the other, no, no, before one we second. go there. What, what, hold hold on, on. I'll give you a second to do it. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Just turn taking. Turn taking. Uh, <laughs> I, I, we have a lot of Sufi mystics who are listeners. So we want to emphasize that any comments about the Enneagram are, are the sole opinions of our guests. So please don't. Don't unsubscribe all the Sufi mystics who are are, are avid listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. That was a good thing. All right, so <laughs> so I just wanted Zoe. Does that gel with what Hannah said? Does that sort of around the space? Well, for starters, I don't know what dubious means. Excuse me, I don't even say. <laughs> Someone needs oh, dubious. To... Not what Dan said. What what what, what Hannah said? A little bit too. Uh, I would I would say very very elaborate for me. Can someone like? Give me the gist. I, what I meant, what oh, I meant to say that. is that the 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 tests and and psycho um, um, and and all the tools that we um, we use, whether that's three hundred and sixty or any other tool that you may use, have 
um, are deeply flawed in the sense that they will tell you what the person wants to tell you, right? So that's one. The level that the other aspect that you mentioned, Zoe, yourself was the the other problem with them is when you ask somebody, okay, are you, you know, do you like to go out? And that's that's a legit question on the quiz, but the answer might be, for me, going out means, you know, 10 years ago, that would be every other day, we would go to a dinner party or blah, blah, blah. And these days, it's like, I go out, you know, once in the, like, a blue moon. And, and so do I answer yes, or do I answer no? And so these things are perceived by the reader or by the test taker also on the scale. So there are two issues. One is they will only tell you what they want to tell you. And then two, they mm -hmm. will, the, the respondents will interpret, just as you say, what that question is for their own personal, you know, sliver of the world, which in aggregate, you know, might not necessarily um, yeah. okay. lead to enough. accurate results. Well, both of them are easy and, to fix. Sorry, and the third thing I was going to say is, and and despite all that, despite being problematic, despite being, you know, um, intellectually, you know, um, questionable value, I think they do have value. And I think that they do reveal something and they're they have place. So I am not, you know, I can be aware of the, of the issues and I can still use them. I can still um, find the right fit for the right company or for the right client. And, and it might actually reveal something that it's important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for starts, in my opinion, it's highly unethical to use psychometric tests in order either to, to define, let's say somebody's future even even if that means joining a company or giving a promotion or deciding the trainings or whatever psychometric tools are supposed to be read as tendencies inside an organization so if you write a good organize a good psychometric organizational survey then you get a lot a lot of information very fast about where you should focus your interest when you're running some interventions in this organization so that should be their value and that's how i use them and when you use them that way, you don't really care about what you just described, Hannah, because it's not so much about this one particular person that's going to try to ruin the entire thing because they're going to tell you what they believe in. This is easily fixable because at the end, when you see something that doesn't really match in the grand scheme of things of your results, then you go and you run an interview and then you understand what happened there. So, and that's why exactly we go back to A. They shouldn't be used by people that, one, they don't understand how they should be used and they can't run this debrief at the end. This backup questioning that's going to reveal whether this person answered based on their perception, how does this fit in here? And another thing is that what I usually try to do is I develop specific psychometric tests in an entire organization. If they tell me, okay, Zoe, just run for these five people, then I'll say, why, what does it matter? Let's say that you reveal, I use a five factor and we find out that these five people are very extrovert. What is this information? Does it mean anything for you? What will mean something is that if we measure everyone and we find out that the organization, I don't know, scores like 3.5 in extrovert, and then those five people score two, that means something. We know that probably there won't be a good match or we need to find a way to help them or we need to try different, apply different tests for those five people. So it's all about what you're trying to do. Most of the psych psychotherapists, 
they usually don't even apply psychometric tests in their evaluation unless they're searching for something very, very specific, like a disorder. If they are searching for a disorder, then only they will apply some kind of test, but still it won't be enough. If you try to decide if someone has, I don't know, something, autism or ADHD, it's not just enough to run a test on them. You run various tests and then you spend a lot of time with them and then you spend a lot of time with their environment and then you give a diagnosis. It shouldn't be considered a panacea uh, or an instant solution for every problem you have. It's just there to give you guidance in order to understand faster where you should focus and where to start from. Right. And so you both have experience with psychometric tests to gather data about the the people you're working with and consulting and and trying to build teams with. Um, Through those psychometric tests, I'm kind of transitioned to kind of your experience as leadership consultants and trainers and, you know, common themes of advice um, that you give to individuals and organizations around leadership. What are, you know, and we could tie it again to the psychometric piece. What are some findings that you've had through the, your use of psychometrics and interviews and consulting sessions and coaching sessions? What are some major themes mm-hmm. about leadership advice that you tend to give people, you know, uh, through your work? I can tell you the first one. In Greece, we have a very nice saying that roughly translates to English something like, either the port is crooked or crooked is the way we're sailing, which means that many times they come to me at the session and they accuse everyone. Every single person in the team is wrong and their managers are wrong and the environment is wrong. And then I just go back and say, okay, you know, either everyone is wrong or what else can be happening? Let's see if it's something else can be happening. So I would say that this is the most common <laughs> pattern that I have to go through at work. And the second most common is because I work a lot with C-suite executives and CEOs and like owners also and founders. How do you tell someone who's making millions that they're doing something wrong and that they might be having a hidden opportunity cost that they don't realize? Because usually what they respond to me is, uh, trust me, company's going great, so I'm doing everything perfect. And then you really need to convince them that, okay, it might be going great, but there's a possibility that if you made these changes, it could go even greater. So that's also an issue that I usually have. Fascinating. Hannah? I'm thinking about this a a little differently. Uh, I agree with uh, the... (laughs) I had that conversation with two clients. Um, It's again, tricky when you have somebody who's successful and yet they're struggling, right? So to have these conversations, so I think there's two issues. One is when you have somebody who's really successful and his company's doing great, this this was a guy, and how to to say, um, how can we like, there, there are people on your team who are miserable and how to communicate, like the person might be aware that they're miserable, but they, you know, they believe like this guy believe that it's because there are miserable people as opposed to, you know, I might have something to do with that um, as a leader of this company. But the other issue that I think is really interesting, and I wonder if that's what you were uh, touching up on, uh, Zoe, is the is the um, sort of, I'm doing 
I'm doing uh, great on paper and I am miserable myself. And I find these um, easier to approach because then if, if, there's, if, if there is the self-awareness, like, look, my team's doing great, I'm making money, the company's pr prospering, I'm not happy, right? And how do we get out of that? So having these conversations is, is complicated, like it's not complicated, it's, it's, um, it's a little challenging, but I think that they are easier because there's a self-awareness. And, and I think that the, to me, when you deal with people who are lying to themselves, that's, that's the hardest bit. When you, um, I think sometimes the, the coaches would go to uh, different tests to kind of have a data backup because people trust data, even though they might be lying on those tests. And, and I think that the, so there's a, there's a, I don't know if you know the uh, Harry Frankfurt's brilliant book on bullshit, but there's basically, Oh yeah. It's a fantastic essay. And, I just downloaded it. And it's a philosophical um, treaty, essentially, even or essay, even though it sounds very, you know, pop culture, where he distinguishes between lying and bullshitting. And and the lying is yeah. when you you tell somebody that you have, okay, I'm putting my great lunch in this fridge. Don't touch it. It's my mom's favorite, you know. <laughs> I don't know, bolognese. And then you secretly put poison in it, right? And so you're lying. You know the truth and you're lying. Bullshitting is different in the in the sense that you are um you have sometimes you um kind of don't have the understanding of truth at all, right? And so so you can lie to yourself much easier because you sometimes believe your own BS. And also because sometimes you just don't think that the truth matters at all, right? So psychopaths and, and, but a lot of BSers would do this. It's a long way of saying when you deal, I, I find the most difficult dealing with people um, professionally who are um, lying to themselves and who cannot have that, um, conversation about, okay, I'm struggling and, or like, there are, I see that I'm not doing well, right? Like those are, you're brought in, there's a reason, right? And the, and you cannot have that conversation. Those I find the most challenging and yet most exciting because there's also bigger reward when it works out. All right. I have one anecdote, one anecdote and one question. Um, so my anecdote is this, um, about, 40,000 years ago, I worked at Trader Joe's. Uh, Zoe, you probably don't know what Trader Joe's is. Trader Joe's is a very popular uh, grocery store here um, in the United States. It's, I, I couldn't even qualify. I don't know, it's Disneyland cheese, for grocery. Cheese and wine. <laughs> yeah, cheese and wine, it started off that way. It's a lot more than that. But but I was there and, and back in the 90s, there was nothing hipper than being a Trader Joe's employee. Maybe it still is today, but it was cool being in my 20s working for Trader Joe's. And I had a good friend of mine named John Lakey and who Dan Tarker knows. And uh, John wasn't there for long. He was out there for about six months. He went off to go do other things. But while he was there, I became good friends with him. And he, he, there's a long story about him coming in, working for six months and leaving. And he, um, the, the, the manager of the company sort of like 
vouched for him to come and work. And John kind of felt bad about leaving the company so quickly, just being there for maybe it was less than six months. He had like, you know, a little remorse on that. And knowing that I bullshitted against him. I said, Joe, man, uh, Steve, the owner, the manager goes, Steve was pissed, man. He was pissed. You know, I'm just bullshit. I, I was it a lie. It was a bullshit. And, but I just, I didn't even think anything of it. I just kind of, and he's like, he's like, never said it again. Never thought it'd be, it was just like a bullshit thing I did. You know, it's bullshit. I'm years later, years later, we're talking and, and, uh, and we're talking about fun times of bullshitting and stuff. I go, and I go, John, remember that time when I put my bullshit about, about John, about Steve not wanting you to come back? He's pissed. He goes, that was bullshit? I go, yeah. He goes, I haven't gone back to that <laughs> sure. Trader Joe's since. Ooh. And I'm like, <laughs> and so there was an interesting thread between a lie and a bullshit. I was being meaningful. To your point, Han, in that moment, truth didn't matter to me in a weird way, right? I was just kind of playing around. It was a non-consequential circumstance other than he wasn't able to get that Trader Joe's grocery store anymore. But but still, there was there was that point where, you know, that it, you got to be careful about your bullshit. That's my anecdote. My question, though, is you made a really interesting comment about not knowing thyself, the people who who don't. And is there danger, though, in, recognize, in, in, in revealing the weaknesses in an organization as a leader or as a follower about saying, um, showing that that vulnerability of not of of the things you don't know or the or that discovery process, are there downsides to that in a working environment? And I, that's for anybody. so very quickly. I will jump on this and just tell you, the problem is also that let's let's be honest. You got where you are because you were bullshitting your way through, and or you were you know like <laughs> the way you were got you where you, you are why would you change right like i think that once you're at the very top you might have some you know reason to like grow more and and but when you're on the way up honestly the incentives to change if if it works and there there's a cultural thing too right like so we were talking at the beginning about how do you present yourself and we are way more as a huge can of worms or like a huge complex issue we might not get into, but with a DEI and we with all like equity um, topic being everywhere in the US at least, but ESG is also big in, in Europe, there is also way more awareness of your identity and how you how you enter the room, right? Like how you present yourself. And your identity plays way bigger role than it used to. And but in the traditional organizations, when you are, you know, like if if it worked for you up till this point, you know, you don't have a lot of incentives to to change it on your own. There's always an issue that pushes you to that. Or, you know, there are there are other people on the team might not be happy or your supervisor. I got a call just yesterday. Somebody was asking me to, to coach some of their, you know, direct reports. And it's like, okay. Um, if like, again, on your, you got there by being certain way, it worked. Yeah. Joda's all of Joda's success is tied to his bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> Zoe, <laughs> what's 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 your opinion about bullshitting? I mean, I do. I, I one could make an argument that we have a bullshit crisis in our culture <laughs> on the Western civilization because uh, we're all bullshitting hmm. ourselves to a certain degree. Yeah, but we also have a crisis. Uh, of, and the, yeah, and uh, we also have a crisis of imposter syndrome. So I would argue that we have a right. crisis of not having mm. any balance. On the one hand, we have people that just fake it until they make it, and sometimes they never make it. And it's like the inventing Anna society, which, I don't know, you're like, you have no voice, but you are in these talent shows asking why they didn't uh, give you the chance to release an album. This is 50%. And then we have these other 50% that they might be so talented and smart and like they put in the work and they just never get it out there because they feel that they're not good enough. So... That for me is the problem. Where is the balance and when did we lose it as a society? When did we start being so bipolar in these things? And there's no one saying, okay, I'm good at this thing, but I'm not good at this other thing. If I work a little bit there, then I can be better. Do you think it has something to do with social media? I mean, I know it's a cliche question in a sense because we've talked about this over and over again on this podcast and other places. But I mean, do you think that dichotomy between bullshitter and imposter syndrome was, if anything, is I think, fueled by media? It, I think that it started way before with reality shows. That's when it started. When the, the concept oh, of, okay. I can be famous without doing anything. I can be famous for just being famous. That's the first time we show it. And the reality shows go back about 30 years now. So for it's, me, it's possible. at least that's the first time I started seeing it. Before that, it was so much about what yeah, will... Survivor, all that kind of and stuff. And it was all about what will people what, think. So what will others think? It was more about uh, maintain a specific facade. Otherwise, I'm going to be judged. Right. But then after the, the invention of reality shows, it was more about being different, be you. And the more different you are, the better. And the more you're going to stand out. And that's when I think it started. Because at the end, we can be just as different as we can be equals. So and the same. I know a lot of people who would suggest would throw out the terminology postmodernism. Yeah, my my PhD as as a my as a PhD culprit. supervisor would be that people. It's his favorite word. Yeah, no there are people what we say right? always at the air. He says postmodern. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 a handy word for those to complain, and I think rightly so, and also not rightly so about the lack of ability to qualify what's real and what's not real at times. Right. It's, it's a, it's a tool that it's, we allow the notion that perception means a lot more and quantum physics even has tested that perception changes. I mean, there's all these things we're told over and over again, the reality, the mind, even Buddhism says the mind precedes everything. That's 2000 years ago. You can almost argue postmodernism started with, you know, Buddhism. So, um, I don't know. I just thought, you know, I, I, I know think we need to clarify this. And I'm going to jump to Hannah because I know she probably has some opinions on this. But when we talk about postmodernism and leadership and bullshitting ourselves, what? Are, how do those things link up? How do they tie together? Oh, you're putting me on the spot, but I will answer anyway. The <laughs> I will I will go back to uh, I will start with Z- Zoe's uh, point and and say, I think that you're right, that it might have been starting with the reality shows. I think Joda's point about postmodernism is is sort of, this is where it started breaking down completely. And you have the societal uh, sort of changes and post-war 
um, and the seventies. And so, so I think philosophically and the sort of the intellectual elites really started kind of thinking about this. And then the reality shows kind of introduced that concept to the masses. But I do believe that social media has been the biggest culprit because it exacerbated it and like um, worked as a, as a catalyst to the point where you can be known for absolutely no reason whatsoever. You're just on, you know, TikTok a lot and or you you are famous for being famous, right? So so there are and 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 that is where we are these days. I do want to say that if you guys all remember the show uh Hollywood Square that was full of people in the 60s that were famous for being famous. Um, Pia Zadora was famous for being famous. She would like did nothing. So it does seem like it's it's that's kind of been a thing for quite a while. Even the scale before, is right? completely unprecedented, though. The scale is different, True. right? True. Right. So, yeah. um, and again, I think that it's it's going to have terrible consequences for. <laughs> Um, for the the kids who are unable to distinguish between the reality and and like values, et cetera. Anyway, but to your point, Dan, about okay, so now what? Right? Like, if I may distill your question, is yeah. basically now what? If you're a leader and you're looking at this, what to do? And I think for leaders, it's a it's a it's a position where you have to align align your sort of to really look at your values your company's values and we're back to walking the talk so people yes. are discombobulated they are as as Zoe said we're have we have this extreme and we have this extreme and we're like you know oscillating constantly and like it's almost feels like a free fall and the job or like the role of a leader in this environment i think is to give that sense of safety and yet openness, like you have to navigate the complexity, right? You have to navigate the complexity. And if you seem like somebody who's able to navigate the complexity, then people will follow you and, and they will be happy to follow you. That doesn't mean, you know, like be free to fail, like, like all of it. It doesn't have, you cannot say this is what it is. And we're never going to, you know, go out of, I don't know, like you can be rigid, but you have to demonstrate that you're able to walk the talk and you have to pay attention. I think uh, Zoe works very closely with companies in terms of um, culture and that's the glue that holds you, right? So understanding your culture and understanding how you impact it and, and what it is, and you know, those stolen lunches are part of that culture. If it if that option A, right. we go and we just pretend that ne doesn't happen, it will take care of itself. If you have the culture where that is the case, you know, great. But if you're not, that's gonna kind of like warm your way into a destruction. I disagree with uh, with what Hannah said about social media. I think that 
it's not easy to be famous on social media. I think that especially for back in the day and especially for older generations and back when it first started, it seemed like that. But to actually do it, there are endless that try it, of course, because the platform is there and that makes it feel approachable. But it's not really approachable. Think about it. how many people actually do it and actually capitalize it and monetize it in its consistency. It needs to be creative. You need to develop your niche. You need to be show up. It's exactly like running a business. Therefore, I also don't think that it's going to have catastrophic uh, results for kids because kids are growing up into that. They know they have TikTok from the age of four, so they understand it. It's mostly, if anything, I think that it's more catastrophic for older people who don't understand how these platforms work and they just ridicule themselves. They just try to do what they think is going to work and they don't even understand that it's a different world that has its own rules. I was in Germany last week with my, I have some clients there and they've developed an entire R&D department on uh, VR and virtual reality and virtual chats because they're in tech. So I use their equipment and that's a different world on its own with its own rules. There are people that are actually famous inside the VR, but it's not, it's different guidelines that you really need to learn if you want to do it. Or we talk about metaverse and we say, oh, we're going to have a life in metaverse and people are going to be famous there. Well, it's going to be just as hard as it is to be famous in real life. And the fact that you might have, I don't know, 10,000 followers, 15,000 followers, it means nothing because we are so many people. We are like, what, seven, eight billions now? So in order to actually say yeah. you're famous, just because 15,000 people know you and follow you on Instagram, because I don't know, you post your cards, it means nothing. You will never capitalize on that. So I don't think that it's actually easier. I just think that there, it, on the outside, if you actually never try to do it, it might seem easier. That's not what I was saying, though. I was saying that it helped that feeling of disconnect between reality and um, and we were talking about um, sort of knowing yourself and and the imposter imposters and um, and people who are um, uh, having imposter syndromes and and all of that and I think that the the virtual world does exacerbates it by just you have access to way more people. So there's this, you know, I think we talked about it on the first podcast. There used to be your world was like 115 people who you actually knew personally, you, who you knew and you can learn, you could learn from your family or your friends or people in your village or your town and like how you would interact. Then you had TV and there were some stories and some, you know, and books and, and other ways how to access more of the world. Now you have the world at your fingertips. You can be looking at how they're mining, you know, cobalt um, in Africa. You can be looking at, you know, people uh, in sweatshops in Guatemala. You can be looking at models in, you know, Taiwan. You can follow a lot of people and understand very singular slice of the world that was inaccessible to you before. So mm -hmm. all I was saying was that the scale is now much larger. And to your point, absolutely. Like, I think that the best thing that ever happened to Gen Z is Mr. Beast. Like, I am a big fan. And that's somebody who, you know, Mr. Beast is phenomenon, who, you know, somebody who's been really crafting his his uh, his art and working at it and being very singularly focused and he he is you know self-made and and 
has all this success because he worked very hard, because he studied this platform, because he was doing blah, blah, blah. So yes, of course, to succeed there is as hard as succeed in like a brick and mortar. But that was not my point. I just wanted to clarify that. Dan, Zoe, Hannah, I've been listening to this is a great conversation. We started off this show with the question about knowing thyself and and how it pertains to leadership, right? And its meaning. And I think we've touched on some real cool subjects. And I'm gonna ask a I'm gonna ask this. What's my takeaway? about knowing thyself and how you kind of touched on a little bit with kind of responding to one of Dan's questions, but ultimately what's the effect, what's the meaning of knowing thyself in, on, on my environment, on my team? And secondly, what is the, what happens when you don't know thyself, but what are my takeaways on, on this conversation? Yeah. For me to know thyself is to know your limits and to know when to let go and when you need to push more. And I think that when you don't know yourself, then you end up finding yourself in situations that, for example, you shouldn't have given up, but you gave up too soon. And then as a result, you didn't get what you wanted or what you needed. Or, and I would probably argue that that's even worse, because you don't know when to let go, you find yourself in situations that are over. And you're just there becoming obsessed about things that don't have anything to offer to you. My takeaway for uh, the listeners would be don't overthink it. Like, I think that really that's my mission in life now um, is to make people think less and, and, and rely on their brains a little less and really trust more other ways of knowing, uh, whether that's perspectile knowing or, or, or um, embodiment or um, sort of sensing and, I say this as somebody who has a PhD and who spent years and years in, you know, um, the, the prefrontal cortex. I think that there's a sort of don't overthink do is, is the, the recommendation I would, I would have for, for leaders. It's, there's, there's such a thing as I, I'm not arguing for thinking less in a sort of, of course, you have to be uh, thoughtful, but I think that there is a danger of overthinking and we are underestimating the value of just showing up and doing. And I think that that's a, you know, a lot of people spend too much time in that prep phase as opposed to actually doing things. And, uh, and that's detrimental to, to your, you know, su success. And then the second thing, the knowing yourself, I think, you know, bringing back Maya Angelou, um, and, and kind of the awareness, I think both about yourself, but also how you interact with other people is something that is, is lost. That second part is being lost very often. People think about how, I, how am I, you know, the navel gazing and, and the like, self-analysis and overdoing it. And Maya Angelou, when she said, you know, people will forget what you have said, what you have done, they will never forget the way you made them feel. That is very important. And again, just because you have great ideas, you still can be an asshole, not in this day and age. Like you shouldn't, you know, forget that. Um, people will leave if you're not a good leader. And I have, I have, um, 
just talked to a, a client whose number two was, you know, offer its fantastic opportunity. And they said no, because they don't want to leave her. Um, and right. because that's the environment that she built. And I think that that's, that's the take home too. Like, don't overthink and, and be mindful of how you come across. And I'm going to add a couple more uh, that speaks to what we've discussed. Don't bullshit yourself, right? Recognize that you might not be as self-aware uh, of yourself as you think you are. Um, I, as an anecdotal, I have somebody who's leaving my, you know, one of my direct reports is leaving and let me know that yesterday. And I was talking to her about her decision and, you know, she has some family stuff going on and she can't afford living in Seattle and there's those factors informing her decision, you know, and the feedback she gave me as her, you know, supervisor was, you know, best boss, always fair. And if somebody, you know, and I'm not saying that to, to pat myself on the back, I just wouldn't have used the term fair to describe my leadership approach. I think it's important, but it never would have been something that popped into my mind. Um, and so, yeah, so, and I, I've taken some psychometric tests in the past. Like there's this one on motivation. I often uh, have people take when I'm doing trainings and that kind of underlie that kind of helps you identify your core operating values that inform your decisions. And when I took that test, I recognized, I was like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that this test is saying is important to me that I would not have thought. Like what was uh, equity was one thing that's apparently very important to me based on this test. And I would never have said, you know, I, I think it's important, but I'd never say it's the fundamental, one of the, the fundamental drivers of my motivation. Um, understanding that came up too, like seeking to understand things, that's something I would have identified. So I guess, yeah, being open to discovering new things about yourself and not bullshitting yourself and not thinking that you know every aspect of who you are and being open to that feedback from the environment is really important to uh, being a leader. Well, my question is, how are we going to uh, weave into this conversation our beloved Taylor Swift? Like that's ah. an ongoing in, inside joke. That yeah. You haven't... So I I do I do have a question. <laughs> I'm going to tie it to Taylor Swift. So we've talked about all these highfalutin ideas about knowing yourself and and um, leadership training and coaching, and that's really important to to the work that all of us do. Mm -hmm. So you have certain figures like Taylor Swift who are idols, so they're leaders in their own way, and so you know. Zoe, you're a big Taylor Swift fan. Describe uh, Taylor Swift's leader leadership style. Well, she's very affiliative, if you haven't noticed. Like, she takes opinions from her fans about everything, and she holds these uh, special fan meetings. And I don't know if you noticed what happened with Ticketmaster. So she's certainly a leader. Just, just because people couldn't get uh, tickets for their concert because of Ticketmaster. Now, Ticketmaster is under research from Congress for having, like, illegal things going on and they're thinking about I mean it's in the states so I don't follow so closely but I saw it on TikTok so it was a very big thing and if we talk about people who know themselves I would say Taylor is definitely a person who knows themselves and she literally released a song called Antihero and she literally talks in her songs about how she uses her uh, benevolence and how she uses her extrovert to disguise her secret narcissism how many people would just put that out there I would, I love that. And I would also say even her Instagram handle is 
hi, it's me, I'm the problem, which is the quote from the anti-hero. And, and I, I think that very much along those lines is another song called Dear Reader. And she basically says, you know, don't ever trust somebody who's, you know, falling apart. And there is a level of, of obviously she can turn a phrase like nobody else in the business, but um, there's a level of trust that she built and curated over the years with her art. And I think that it's interesting to watch her as a woman also in over the years. And what I love about her being the sort of the icon that she is, is how consistently she's been talking about it. You know, you see her interview when she was 20 and she would say, look, I'm writing songs and I'm trying to craft this and be better at this craft for last 10 years and nobody takes me seriously. Or like very few people would, you know, accept this. And now she's at it for like, you know, um, 15 years writing, consistently succeeding. And she still is, you know, being questioned like, oh, she's a pretty face. And it's like, no, these are very good songs. There's, there's poetry, there's, you know, she sold millions. And I think that business-wise, it's amazing. And when she took back all her songs and, you know, set a, a new standard for a lot of musicians. And I think that I just, I, I obviously can talk for a long time about her, but yes, I think the reader. We should just Arma, do a Taylor Swift episode. Oh yeah, we, we should do a Taylor that. Swift episode. The two biggest lessons I've gotten from Taylor Swift is one: I really like how she doesn't care if she looks petty, but if it comes about finding her right, she will just end things. She will just hundred percent. She doesn't let anything slide, and I love that. And the other uh, lesson that I've learned from her is to always focus on the work. At the end of the story, it doesn't matter about does. talk about other people or share how hurt you feel about something or share how you feel wrong. No, focus on the work, put it out there, and then let karma do its business. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's any surprise that I'm not a Taylor Swift fan or not a fan. I just I don't know much about her. But um, obviously, I know who she is. But I will say the moment that I appreciated her had nothing to do with music. Um, although I did watch a little bit of that, that documentary recently that my, my wife has told me I have to watch. So I'm now forced to watch at some point in time here. But was that commercial where she was on the treadmill and she puts on her headphones and she, she face slams in the, into it. I said, okay, this person doesn't take themselves as seriously as the media wants us to think she takes herself seriously. You could tell that there's a spin that goes on out there to portray her in a certain way. And she's like, no, I don't, I'm not that person. And she, and then when she did that commercial, I was thought that's mm -hmm. kind of cool. So. That's that's yeah. what the I work ethic and, and I think that gets back to the other theme. Go ahead. Oh no no you know, I'm sorry I, I was just saying it gets back to the theme of managing your image too as far as far right. as your leadership role. Go well, I'm sorry. But there, so managing your image, sure, but you know that there are other artists who have the teams around them, and it feels very organic for for Taylor Swift. Like there's way more input, and you can right. tell that she's not just going to be told you should do this or you should do that. And and it's feels authentic. It's, it's much more authentic. That's why there's so much trust, you know, from her fans. And and I think that ultimately comes, tr you know, through. 
<laughs> so maybe the next another episode is do teams make leadership? Maybe the teams define good leaders. I've I used yeah, to say to a friend moments episode. moments make leaders leaders moments find leaders leaders don't find moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you could flip it the other yeah. way around, but I thought it was an interesting turn of phrase. So Dan, are we over time? I mean, this is a great conversation. We probably are, are, but we like talking to both Hannah and Zoe. Yeah, we do. Um, but it's probably time to wrap up. So Zoe and Hannah, it's been delightful to have you on the Sense and Signal podcast again. How can people find you if they want to reach out to Zoe or Hannah uh, to, to hire you as a leadership consultant or trainer or a coach? Zoe, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Hannah. So how, how do people find you? I'm very, very active on LinkedIn, TikTok. I have my own website. So just Google uh, Zoe Frago and you'll find me. Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, I am associated with uh, Leadership Associates, which is a consultancy based in Vienna. So their website works too. And uh, I uh, I hope that people will enjoy this episode. I had a great time. You're very uh, gracious hosts. And Joda, do yourself a favor, get the latest album, give it a listen. You love her, <laughs> you know, as there's a- I just don't know yeah. it yet. And above all, don't poison anyone's food. Oh, yeah, exactly. We really love the show. We won't come back again. La, 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 la,